If you have a Bible, you can turn to Psalm 5, or if you have a phone Bible app, you can find Psalm 5 there. If you don't have either, and uh, you want to follow along in the bulletin, you can there. It's it's printed. We are going to be doing a a message series on the book of Psalms over the next several months. We're just going to camp out here. I mean, Silas and Tyler have already kind of started it. They both preached from Psalms the past two weeks, and uh, I think it will be very, very valuable for us to spend a good amount of time in the book of Psalms. It's one of my favorite places to go um, throughout my time as a Christian because it's full of really powerful truths about who God is. Um, It's also full of just real honesty about how um, life is and where the two things intersect. And uh, and that's, uh, that's what we need. We need to know that God is real and that he's relevant for reality. And, um, and so we're just going to camp out in the book of Psalms for several months. And we'll probably return to a lot of the similar themes over and over again, but we need to hear them and we need to wrestle with them. And I would encourage you, if you haven't really read the Psalms that much, or if you have, um, I would encourage you every week maybe um, to continue to read maybe the Psalm that we cover today, Psalm 5. Just take, read that again every day this week and think about it. Or maybe as we are going through it today, if there is one verse or even one half of a verse that really jumps out to you, I encourage you to maybe write it down. Um, write it down on your, on your bulletin or write it down on a card later and to try to memorize it or just try to spend time thinking about it every day. Try to use it to pray to God. Use his words to pray back to him um, and see how it changes you. So um, we're going to look at Psalm 5 this morning. It was written, it's, it's ascribed to, to David. Um, and we're not sure exactly when David wrote this, uh, but it's, it's apparent, as, as we will see, that he's writing it when he is dealing with enemies who are making his life difficult. They're making life difficult for him. They're making it difficult for him to follow God and to, to live the way that God wants him to live, to live out the calling that God has placed upon him. And so this is what David says. Listen to God's word. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Let's pray. 
Father, we, we ask that you would speak to us now through your word. And we look forward to what you will do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One skill that I have been really proud of in my lifetime, probably excessively proud of it, seeing as how I'm so mediocre at it, is juggling. I learned to juggle when I was in like eighth or ninth grade. And uh, my grandparents got me this book and these, uh, these three, that comes with these three bean bags. It's called Juggling for the Complete Klutz. And, and I, uh, I took it and uh, it was for Christmas. And, I, and I, I immediately tried to start like, you know, following the directions in the book and trying to learn to juggle. And, and at first, when I was first doing it, it was so incredibly awkward. And it was like, I have everything stacked against me. There's no way I'm ever going to be able to really do this. I'm never going to be able to do this. This is impossible. It's too hard. There's too many obstacles. Have you ever, you know, tried to do something in life when this just feels like you're never going to be able to get it? I mean, also like picking up an instrument, trying to learn an instrument often is, for a lot of us, is, is kind of like that. When I, rem I remember when I first try tried to start learning the guitar, it was like, I, I'm not going to be able to do this. I just can't, it's, it's just too awkward. I, there's too many, too, much, too many things stacked against me. I'm never going to be able to do this. It's impossible. It's just too, way, way too difficult. Um, I think there is a similar feeling for those of us who maybe are really actually trying to or thinking about trying to live the way that we're supposed to. Trying to live a life of righteousness. I think David was feeling that. Um, I think that's why David prays in verse 8. He says, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. This is hard because these guys who are set up against me, they're telling lies, they're slandering me, they're making life impossible. How am I going to do what you're calling me to do? How am I going to live the way that I'm supposed to live? How am I going to live a righteous life? It's impossible. And I think for any of us who actually set out to try to live a righteous life, to try to live life the way that God wants us to live it, the way that God made us to live it, it's It's awkward. It's hard. It's, it's, there's a lot of things stacked against us. And, and it's, it's like, how am I ever going to be able to do what I'm supposed to do? How am I ever going to live the way I'm supposed to live? And as I said, I, I think David was feeling that. David was feeling that. It wasn't just simple. It wasn't easy for him to live the way that God wanted him to live, to live a life of righteousness. And yet, as I, as I look at this, psalm and as david prays you know he says lead me O lord in your righteousness teach me how am i going to do it how am i going to become more righteous how am i going to become a person who lives the way that that pleases you i think we can look at this psalm and, and get it as just three kind of different um tips or, or ideas think three different characteristics of what the righteous life looks like how do we pursue this life of righteousness and they might surprise you. The first thing, and, and if you're looking at the outline, if you're following along on the outline, I want you to just scratch out the word dependent, okay? Because I changed it. But it's still a D. Um, the first thing that we need to understand is that uh, to live a righteous life means that we have to understand that we are debtors to grace. We are debtors to grace. We owe everything to grace, to what, for, to God giving us what we don't deserve. 
And I think David has a real understanding of that here. One of the things as you read this psalm that comes out, if you were listening, is there's, uh, David is really, he talks a lot about evil and wickedness. He talks a lot about the bad guys. Um, he talks, you know, he, he says, you are a God who, who, you are not a God who delights in wickedness, right? Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes, you know, in, in verses four and five. In six, you destroy those who speak lies, and then he returns to these, these guys who are his enemies, right? He, in, in verse 9, he says, there's no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. There's this kind of alternating between him focusing on these terrible people, these wicked people, and then these verses where he's kind of talking about himself and talking about hopefully kind of the, the, there's kind of two ways of life juxtaposed here, the, the life of the righteous one and the life of the wicked, right? And he also makes the point, uh, uh, he, he highlights the holiness of God, that when it comes to wickedness, God cannot share the same space with those who are wicked, with those who are evil, right? Evil may not dwell with you in verse 4. God and evil, God and all that is wrong is incompatible. And so what's the difference? What's the difference between all of these people that he sees as wicked and, and himself does David seem to think that, well, he's done everything right, and so God loves him because he's done everything right, and he's perfectly obedient? No. If you look at verse 7, what's the difference between all of the wicked and him? He says, but I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. He says, evil cannot dwell with you, cannot dwell in your house. So how is it that David knows God? How is it that David experiences the presence of God? It's not because David has earned it by doing all sorts of good things, by being perfect. It's because God has brought him near through his steadfast love, through the abundance of his steadfast love. That, that word that's translated steadfast love, we'll return to it over and over again through the Psalms. It's, it's the word hesed, which is the Old Testament kind of the, the closest idea in the Old Testament to the, to the idea of grace that we have in the New Testament. This, the, the word hesed communicates this idea of God, his committed, loyal love that he, that he sets upon a person or a people, and he commits to loving them no matter what it's going to cost him. It's not dependent on them, it's dependent on him and his commitment, and his love. And, and that's what he's talking about. Because of God's decision to love him, that's why he is able to come near. It's not because he's perfect. In fact, David is well aware, and we'll see that in the Psalms, David is well aware that he is wicked himself. That there is an evil that creeps around in his own heart. And so the only way that he can come into the presence of God is because of God's loving kindness because of God's grace because God chooses to love him and bring him near when he doesn't deserve it this is the only way any of us can come near to God it's the only way any of us can come near to God it's the only the only way any of us can hope to live a life that is righteous it's be, it's by beginning with knowing that we don't deserve God's love we don't deserve his kindness. It begins there. A life of righteousness be begins with knowing that we are a debtor to grace, that we owe everything to him. Because when we know that we are a debtor to grace, what does it do? It, it, it creates a real sense of humility. And humility is the foundation for any kind of righteous living. 
humility is the foundation to, to living a life the way that we were meant to live it. And so we have to understand that we are debtors to grace. This is crucial to living a life of righteousness because when you know you're a debtor to grace, it makes you humble. Um, when I was about 11 years old, my family took a trip to Washington, D.C. And while we were there, we spent some time with uh, a man and his wife. His name's Richard Howerson. Um, he has since passed away. But he, we spent some time with him because he was close friends with my grandparents. And uh, at the time, it was in the 80s, at the time, he was the chaplain to the U.S. Senate. So he was a very, he, he was an important guy. He had an important position. And what was really cool when we went and spent time with him is that he took us into the Capitol building. And because we were with him, he took us in through these like secret passageways that nobody else gets to go in, you know? And he, and he took us into these places in the Capitol that nobody else gets to go in unless you're an elected congressman, you know? And eventually he took us into the, the dining room in the Capitol building where, you know, as, as we go in there, as I look around, I just see incredibly important people all around me, all these people who have earned their place to be there, right? And, and there's little old me, little old 11, 11-year-old me. And uh, as, I, as I went into that dining room and sat down to eat, um, I wasn't demanding that my chicken strips got there on time, you know? I wasn't, I wasn't like, where are my chicken strips? I, I was in no way feeling entitled to be there. I was very aware that I was only there because Dr. Halverson had brought me in. I didn't deserve to be there, you know? And so it made me, it, it made me very aware that, you know, I, I didn't deserve to be there, and, and I, it just made me very observant. It made me very grateful to be there, you know, even as an 11-year-old. And that's what being a debtor to grace does to us. A debtor to grace isn't thinking about what they're entitled to. A debtor to grace isn't demanding what they think they, they deserve. A debtor to grace isn't complaining about what they don't have, about how things aren't going the way they want them to. A debtor to grace is a person who is very, very grateful for all that they have. A debtor to grace isn't obsessed with how others are treating them but instead are free to notice others, especially others that other people overlook, maybe. And so first and foremost, I think we were reminded in Psalm 5 that, uh, that to live a righteous life is first and foremost to know that, that the only way that we can stand rightly before God is because of his love that he has given to us. Because that, that's, the, that's the reason that Jesus came into our world, in order to live and to die for us so that we would so that we wouldn't have to answer for our own wickedness and our own rebellion. And so a life of righteousness begins and ends with knowing that we're debtors to grace. Also, um, a life of righteousness has everything to do with being devoted to prayer. And I think you see that here in verses 1 to 3. We see that David is a guy who is absolutely devoted to prayer. The first three verses, he, he's talking about prayer, right? Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. That word groaning is talking about these inward desires that he can't even articulate himself. But they're directed towards God. He's like, God, I know you hear me. Even the things that I can't even express. Give attention to the sound of my cry. And there's an intimacy here, right? My king and my God. David has a real intimate interaction with God as his father and his king. 
and he knows that God hears him. In verse 3, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. He's confident that God hears him. He's devoted to prayer. But then there's this really key um, part of the verse. At the end of verse 3, it says this, In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. He says, I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. And I think that is key to his whole prayer life, this idea that that David not only cries out to God, not only pleads with God for things to give him help, to protect him, but then he pays attention and he watches for what God's going to do. He's expectant and that makes him continue to give attention to throughout the rest of his day to watch, what are you going to do, God? What are you going to do in response to what I've just said? That word watch is a word that is used to describe prophets who would be posted to, to just, just, their whole job was just to look and watch for the very first sign of God answering a prayer. You know, they would be posted, look on the horizon, just give their, their intense attention to the horizon or to the sky maybe. This is a very different sort of praying than I think a lot of us do. Very different than a lot of us do. Many of us pray for things. You know, when, when someone is sick, we, we pray. We ask for God to heal them. We ask for God to help them, sustain them, to give them strength. When, when we're facing a, a difficult thing in our, our lives, a problem that we cannot figure out, how are we going to do this? How are we going to ha- handle this? We ask God to help us, Father. Father, give me, give me help. Help me. Give me wisdom. Help me know what to do. Right? When, when things are, are going difficultly, when things are hard, we pray and we ask God. But then, but then we kind of pray and then we just hope things are going to go better. Um, or maybe there are some of us who are, are very disciplined. Maybe we, some of us get up every morning and we, and we spend a significant time in prayer. Maybe we spend five minutes or 15 minutes or even an hour and we pray. And we pray for a long list of things. And then we just go about the rest of our day. And we, we were like, I prayed for it. So let's just, you know. Hope things are going to be, be okay. But here, David prays. He prepares a sacrifice, and he prays, and he asks for God, and then he watches. And then he, he gives his attention to, to all of life and, and what happens and all of his circumstances. He says, God, what are you going to do now? And he watches, and, he's, and, he, and he looks, and he's, and he's expectant. You know, he's, 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 he's not just like praying and then forgetting about it and hoping things are going to go okay. He's actually intently looking for what God's going to do. You know, the way that any of you guys ever use, you know, look, have one of those uh, Where's Waldo books where you're just like looking everywhere you can, just like, where is Waldo? And you're looking and looking and looking. I think that's how David watches. That's how we are called to watch, to, to be devoted to prayer, is to have this intimate connection with God where we, we don't just pray, and then we go about life, we actually pray, and then we continue to interact with God and look for what he's going to do and the circumstances and what other people say to us as he brings up verses or, or, or things that we've read in his word. We're watching for what he's going to do. And this is the, the kind of life of righteousness, I think, that he calls us to, a, a life where we are, uh, you know, it's not saying that we can't be busy doing other things, but we need to learn to multitask. We need to learn to, to go into work and to go into the office and to be in a, an office meeting and yet at the same time be watching. God, what are you going to do here? What are you going to do? How many of us are, are praying for more? 
I'm not saying it's wrong to pray for healing. I'm not saying it's wrong to pray for answers to our problems. Of course, we should be praying for those things. But how many of us are praying for more than that? How many of us are praying for God to change the very nature of my marriage, to change the very culture of my family, to change my children, to become more satisfied in him, and to be watching for what he's going to do? How many of us are asking him to change the very culture of our church community, of our, of our, our community here in Randolph and, and, and in our nation? How many of us are praying for change? How many of us are praying that God will use me in a significant way in the life of this other person today and then watching for what he's going to do? What are you going to do? How many of us are asking God, you know, David says, lead me in verse 8, lead me, God. How many of us are actually asking God to lead me today and then watching for how he does it and then responding to that? Maybe there, there are some here who, who haven't come to a place where, where you, have actually, you actually believe that this is real and worth putting the weight of your life on. I, would, I, I dare you to ask God genuinely, show me yourself, lead me. And then, don't just forget about it, watch. Watch for what he does in response. So he calls us to be debtors to grace, devoted to prayer. And lastly, um, just briefly, because we're going to return to this over and over again, I would say. He, he, I think a life of righteousness has to do with daring to delight. Daring to delight. This is where David finishes. This is where he concludes his psalm in verses 11 and 12. He ends up just meditating on joy. Let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. Exult means to celebrate with gladness. Let those who love your name celebrate you with gladness why? For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. You cover him with favor as with a shield. When I think of living the way that I'm supposed to, when I think of living a life of righteousness, what I'm tempted to think more than anything else is that living a life of righteousness, living the way that I'm supposed to, has to do with just cold, hard obedience. You know, I've got to figure out what I need to do, and I need to do it. I've got to figure out how I need to serve this person, how I need to sacrifice, and I need to do it. That's what righteousness, that's, that's my first inclination as I think about righteousness. But as David asks God to lead him in righteousness, where he ends up is just meditating on how God is a source of joy. Just delighting in who God is and in what he does, in God's protection, in God's favor. In God's goodness. And I think this is what God wants his people to see more than anything else. That we will be, that we will be most satisfied in life when we are surrendered and submitting and finding our security in God. That is what we were made for. We will be most happy when we're seeking to find our happiness in knowing and serving God. We will be most fulfilled when we direct our love towards God above all else. 
He says here, right, in verse 11, that those who love your name may exult in you. That is where David wants to lead us. That's where God wants to lead us, to a place where we love him more than anything else. That is what living a life of righteousness is about. It's not just about, like, knowing what I have to do and doing it. It's about loving God so that I do what should be done, and it brings me nothing but joy. You know, when we talk about love, what does it mean to love? And a lot of times, I think rightly, we talk about the fact that love is not, like in, in a culture where we live, where we're, the culture it talks a lot about how you fall into love with somebody, you know, you have no control over it, and it just kind of overcomes you and, you, and everything. And, and, you know, rightly, we, we correct that idea in saying that, no, love is actually, it, it can be a choice, it can be a decision. I'm going to decide to love somebody. When two people get married, it should be a, a commitment to love that other person, no matter how hard it is, Right? But I think there is an element to love where, where when I love somebody, what I do when I love them is I tie my sense of joy and my sense of happiness up with them and their well-being and their happiness and their joy. I say that my, my joy and my happiness is dependent on this person and how they're doing. And I think that's what God invites us to do, to dare to tie our sense of joy and well-being and happiness to him. Say that I am only going to be as happy as you are, God. That's revolutionary. Because guess who's the happiest being in all of the universe? It's God. If we will tie our sense of well-being and joy to his then it will only lead to greater joy. It'll only lead to greater, a greater sense of peace and happiness for ourselves. And so he invites us to dare to delight in him, to dare to set our love upon him in the midst of a world that's crying out for us to set our love upon all these other things. To dare to find our joy in him rather than if the giants won or lost last night. Sorry to bring up a painful <laughs> memory, but truly, no matter how the Giants did, God will not let you down. He won't lose. He won't get blown out. He won't. And so tie your joy to him. Tie your joy to him. One key, though, is that all of this takes work. It takes work. It's not just going to happen by itself. When I was learning to play, I, I was talking about learning to play an instrument, how it can be very awkward and difficult. Um, when I went to college, I went to college as a music major, a lot of you guys know, and I, I, uh, I went to, to learn to play the pipe organ. I was a pipe organ performance major. Probably didn't even know those existed. But that's what I did. And, and I hadn't really played the pipe organ. I played the piano all my life, but I went to learn to play the pipe organ. And when I started learning to play the pipe organ, you're playing with your hands and you got to play with your feet too. And I was like, this is, this is not normal. Like, how do you like play two different things with your hands and your feet at the same time? It just did not feel right. It felt awkward. It felt difficult. There's all this stuff stacked against me. I was like, I'm never going to get this. I'm never going to get it. But 
I went to school and, and I took lessons and part of my, I, I had, you know, I got four credits every semester for going to the, to, to the practice room on a daily basis and practicing for four hours a day. And so I would, I would practice for four hours every day and I started to get the hang of it. My feet started to match what my hands were doing or to, or to go with what my hands were doing. And over the co- course of, of, you know, one, then two, then three years, I was playing stuff that I was like, man. You know, it, it, was, it was still work. I was still working at it and playing it. But then I, as I played it, I could also listen to it and I could be like, this is amazing. This sounds so cool. I got to go downtown to a big church and I used to oh, this big giant pipe organ once a week and I'd got to pull out all the stops and just play that thing. And, um, and it was just awesome as I played these, these pieces by Bach and Mendelssohn. And it was just like, I, it, was, it really brought joy. I could enjoy it. And I think that's what God wants for us. That's what, that's what righteousness is. But we need to give attention to it. We need to practice We need to practice reminding ourselves on a daily basis that we are debtors to God's grace, to what Jesus has done for us. We need to practice not just praying. We need to to stretch ourselves in what we pray for, and we need to look. We need to watch for what God does in response to those prayers. We need to watch intently. We need to practice at watching and looking and seeing what he's going to do. And we need to, to practice daring to delight in him. We need to practice, you know, setting our love upon him, getting our joy from him, from knowing who he is, from what he says about himself and what he's done for us and what he promises to do for us. We need to practice tying our joy to that. Untying it from all sorts of other things and tying it to that. And then as we do that over the course of time, that, that we end up, you know, being able to, like, enjoy life. A life of righteousness, a life of God using us, a life of us seeing God work through us and protect us, even from the things that are difficult and the people that are difficult. So I, I, I challenge you, I challenge us to take time today to make an effort. Begin maybe just by asking God, verse 8, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Lead me. And watch what he's going to do. Let's pray. Father, we, we, we do ask you, we ask you to lead us. And, and Father, I pray that you would help us to mean that. To lead us in your righteousness, to lead us toward righteousness, to lead us to see that there is greater joy to be found in knowing you than in anything else. And Father, we pray that you would help us to pay attention to how you do it. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We now have an opportunity to meet Jesus at the Lord's table.